Well, good morning, uh, Christ Bible Church. Good morning, morning, Chuck, and only Chuck. The rest of you, I retract my my welcome. Uh, We are glad that uh, you are here, and and let me, if you're visiting, uh, as Zach said earlier, just welcome you and thank you for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, We're excited to read God's Word and to hear God's Word uh, with you. Uh, If you have just started coming to CBC recently... Uh, We are going back into the book of Kings today, and we will be here for quite some time. Uh, If you don't have one of the scripture journals uh, that cover 1st and 2nd Kings, there's a huge stack of them in the lobby. You can grab one uh, so that you can take notes over the next several months. It's uh, our gift to you. There's no cost at it uh, for you guys. We just want to make that resource available so you can take notes and uh, follow along as we go chapter by chapter through uh, this wonderful book uh, I'm going to get us caught up before we dive in and read uh, 1525 and chapter 16 today, just to kind of set the stage and ramp up to where we are since it's been uh, several months since we left off in Kings. We'll start with just the purpose of the book. So why does the book of Kings exist? Uh, how, do we, how do we read it as original readers? Well, the book of Kings uh, was written around the time of the exile Uh, where the nation of Judah was brought into captivity under Babylon rule. And as they are sitting there in uh, oppression under Babylonian rule, they are left asking questions like, how did we get here? Where is God? Will he be faithful to his covenant promises? And so the book of Kings is a book written to help those people see how God works in nations and throughout history, and to provide an encouragement for these people who find themselves in captivity. The book of Kings opens primarily with Solomon. David dies right at the very beginning, Uh, but the first uh, 10-11 chapters are about King Solomon. And what do we see with his reign through those first uh, 10 chapters? Well, we see that uh, Solomon's reign was unlike any that were before him. Wealth, prosperity, security, All of it is unmatched, not just in the history of Israel, but even in the world. However, towards the end of Solomon's reign, the worship of foreign gods brought about through his many wives began to pollute who he was devoted to. And as his son Rehoboam takes the throne, it's clear that the country has become unsettled by Solomon's actions. So rather than going to the Lord for wisdom, Rehoboam's first big task is to see, (coughs) okay, How should I lead? How should I gain favor with the people? Solomon had had many building projects. He'd done a lot of great work, uh, but he had employed labor, mandatory labor from the nation to complete them. And so the people come to Rehoboam as king and says, Rehoboam, your father worked us really hard. Ease up just a little bit and we will be loyal to you forever. So Rehoboam hears that and he goes and talks to two groups of people. First is his advisors, the wise men. Uh, the older men, and he says, what do you guys think I should do? And these wise older men say, you should listen to the people. Show them that you care about them, that you want to honor them. Uh, Ease up a little bit, and they will be faithful to you forever. Rehoboam doesn't like that too much, so then he goes and talks to all his buddies. He says, buddies, bros, what should I do? And they say, double it, make it even worse. Show them that you're not somebody to be messed with. Make them see that you are an even stronger king than your dad. Well, because Rehoboam liked the sound of that, he says, I'm going to take that advice. And so he goes and says, 
It's going to be even worse. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Life is going to be even harder under my rule than it was under my father's rule because I am strong and I am powerful and I'm going to do things. Uh, To that, the 10 tribes to the north say, no thanks, and they uh, walk away and they start their own kingdom with Jeroboam as their ruler. And so as 1 Kings 12 opens up here, we're almost caught up to where we are today, we have the end of the period of time known as the United Kingdom. Saul, David, Solomon, all under the United Kingdom. Uh, Israel was all the 12 tribes were united under one monarchy. Uh, But now there's a split, and there's going to be Israel to the north, which is the 10 tribes that have left with Jeroboam, and then to the south, we have Judah, which is where David's line will continue to reign in Jerusalem as well as the tribe of Benjamin. And so these two sections, these two kingdoms open up, and we are now in the history of Israel what is known as the divided kingdom. And we are told in 1430 that there was war continually between these two kingdoms. Brothers, same God, God has done great things, has the same promises to them, But what is uh, the result of ultimately Solomon's apostasy and foreign worship is these kingdoms are split into two and brother is fighting against brother continually. These two nations are then marked for the next several generations by leaders who are not devoted to God, uh, but devoted to anything but God. And so as this next major section of the book begins to open, we see Rehoboam giving way to Abijam, which is his son who rules for only two years uh, before he dies as well. Rehoboam's son Abijam makes no important things uh, known about him uh, other than the author says he was not devoted to God just like his father Rehoboam. He loved foreign women and he loved to worship foreign gods. But his reign, short in years and even shorter in descriptions, does hold a promise and a mark of hope for the people. As in 15.4, God says that there will be a lamp that will remain. Now you might wonder why he used the word lamp. Lamp was a common symbol in the ancient world uh, that meant to display the continuation of divine presence within a community. And so when God tells these people in this recording for these Israelites who are in captivity even, or reading about even with this bad king, God has said, a lamp will remain. I am going to keep my promise and my covenant to David because I am a God who is faithful to my covenants. There is hope even in the midst of this apostasy. And so for those that are reading it in exile under Babylonian rule, this is the beginning of an answer. Where is God and will he remember And they start to see, yes, indeed, he will. And finally, as we get closer and closer to our text this morning, we give way to the great one of the great kings of Judah as Abijam dies and his son Asa begins to rule. And Asa does many great things. And unlike his father, grandfather, uh, and even his great grandfather Solomon to some extent, we are told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father, had done. And unlike the short rules of his predecessors and even shorter rules of all of those in Israel that we will see today as we go through the end of 15 and 16, Asa rules for 41 years. His rule in the south in the kingdom of Judah is marked by political stability and love for the Lord. Unlike the north, 
where we will see there's nothing but turmoil, Asa lives at peace with God, peace with his own people, and peace even with other nations beyond Israel. However, Kings is quick, quick to note here that the affairs of Jerusalem have shifted significantly in just a few chapters. So difficult was Asa's position as Basha, one of the kings we'll read about here shortly, pushed into Benjamin and fortified uh, Ramah, which is only two miles, a few miles north of Jerusalem. He had to send treasures out to Ben-Hadad, who is the king of a place known as Aram or Syria, depending on which <coughs> Bible translation you have. Uh, but he sends things in, literally uses the Hebrew word. He bribes this foreign king to make war against Israel, so Israel stops making war against Judah. It works, there's peace, uh, and he has bribed this foreign king. But this is meant to show something. Under Solomon's reign, what was happening? Tributes were flowing in from all over the world. Israel's storehouses, the treasure, uh, treasury was filled with gold from far reaches of the world. He had all of these wonderful gold uh, <coughs> shields and things that he had. Uh, and yet now we see instead of things coming into Israel from foreign nations, Israel is sending things out. They are weakened significantly because of the apostasy of their kings. But then we get to 1 Kings 15, 25, and the kingdom of Israel. So let us read together. We're going to read most of it, skip a, a brief section, the beginning of chapter 16, but we're going to cover some ground here. 1 Kings 15, 25. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Ishkar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all of Israel were laying, laying siege to Gibethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all of the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. <coughs> in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Now we're going to skip down to verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Allah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on the throne, he struck down all of the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all of the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha 
and all the sins of Allah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Allah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gabethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gabethon and all of Israel with him, and they besieged Terzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of the sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and for his sins, which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king, but half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill, and he called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemar for the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sin that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Shagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is God's word. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we're forced to look at the chaos of the kingdom of Israel, of their apostasy, of their evil, Lord, it is easy for us to say how wicked they are, and yet think how good we are. And yet we pray, Lord, as we read, that we would see that we are not too far off from them, that we are prone to uh, follow uh, the ways of this world, to be enticed by things that promise, promise uh, hope, that promise purpose, Lord, that promise even salvation apart from you. Uh, and yet we know, Lord, that 
uh, you call us to be devoted wholly to you. And so we pray that as we look at this text this morning, as we hear your word, that we would find encouragement to be a people set apart, holy, and fully devoted to you, following you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So when we read this section of what we have learned about Asa in 15, it's easy to assume that the kingdom of Judah in the south is probably the stronger of the two nations. They're at peace. They're not fighting as many people. There's stability on the throne. Uh, During the reign of Asa alone here, we see that there are six different kings inaugurated, six kings from four different royal households, right? So this means that there is massive instability, treachery, and tendency to backstab the king in order to elevate yourself. There's idolatry and evil everywhere in Israel. However, if we step back from kings here and judge by the metrics of the world, the northern kingdom of Israel was in fact much stronger than Judah to the south. It had more people, it had more land, it had a stronger military, as evidenced by the need even for Asa to send help to Ben-Hadad to stop uh, Bash's invasion of Israel, uh, but even later on with Omri and Ahab. Right? Life does not seem better, though, for the king or the people of Israel. Even though they have more, even though they're stronger, more prosperous than the kingdom to the south, it seems like their life is much worse as we read Kings. Why is this? Well, there's somebody missing from this whole text, and it's Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of all of their fathers, the God of Israel, is an afterthought at best in all that they do. He is just one of many gods that they go to for worship, for help, for satisfaction in life. Their affections are not for God alone, but yet all of these kings say they follow in the ways of Jeroboam, which means they turn to foreign gods, they set up foreign idols uh, so that the people would worship elsewhere. They make decisions based on political wisdom and expediency, not faith in God. From Jeroboam setting up the golden cows when his reign begins, all the way on down the line through the rest of the kings. Their defining characteristic is not their success in battle, the prosperity of the nation, the expanse of their borders. Uh, No, what defines the kingdom of Israel is that they did evil almost universally, walking in the ways of Jeroboam their father and in his sins. And so in this chapter alone, we see that the house of Jeroboam, the house of Basha, The house of Zimri, if you can even call it that, seven-day reign, the best in history of Israel, the shortest. There are some short short ones, but seven days is the shortest. Uh, And finally, the one that will serve as a backdrop for the next several months as we are in Kings, the house of Omri with Omri and Ahab. All are noted for their rejection of God and their apostasy. But of particular note of these kings this morning is Omri. Why should we draw our attention to Omri? The text doesn't spend much time there, uh, but we should understand that Omri is one of the Israelite kings that we actually have the most extra-biblical information and knowledge of. Omri uh, is recorded in all kinds of ancient uh, documents and stones. For example, the Mesha steel, it's an ancient Moabite stone inscription recording the The Moabite people talks about how Omri has expanded the kingdom of Israel and subjugated all of Moab. 
So because of his efforts as the general and as the king of Israel, they began to expand their borders and subjugate other people. They have resources, unlike the south, going out. They have resources coming in. Uh, So great, actually, is Omri in his reign that even long after he's gone, a hundred years after nobody from his household is on the throne, uh, that other ancient uh, civilizations, such as Assyria, in their ascriptions, talk about Israel not as Israel, but as Omri land. Omri was a significant king politically in that day. He made the nation of Israel a force to be reckoned with. His strategic excellence is even noted here uh, with the purchase of Samaria and the establishment of that as the capital. He moves the capital city because he knows, one, Samaria will be more well fortified, but also how moving it to Samaria will force other nations to use Samaria as a trade route for world commerce. Israel will then be a player in the world economy. They will actually have trade flowing through their cities. And so there's natural fortification there. Israel is stronger not just because of that, but also because of an increase in economical trade and prosperity because of these moves. Omri does many things that we would look to a leader and say he made some wise decisions to help the country be more stable and have greater success. However... None of this is significant to the author writing Kings. In fact, all he tells about Omri here is this in verse 27. Now, the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, the might that he showed, the author knows Omri was a significant person, but he's saying all that he did, all those strengths of of wonder that he did, the military progress that he made, that's all written in another book. It doesn't really matter. Why? Because the original readers of kings sitting in captivity in Babylon already know what happens to Israel. Israel is going to be wiped out by the Assyrian Empire and scattered. Lost almost forever. The kingdom of Israel, despite what seems like all of its advantages, will fall much quicker than the kingdom of Judah. So the People reading Kings, and even us today, don't need to be reminded of the fleeting security of a prosperous nation. Just because Omri did all these great things doesn't mean he was setting Israel up for a long future. In fact, that's going to be the opposite. They're going to fall much quicker than Judah. And so we should be reminded, even as we begin and read this morning ourselves, that the prestige and the things of this world are fleeting. They come and they go quickly. Once powerful nations can crumble overnight, a lifetime of wealth can evaporate in an instant. The things of this world ultimately are insignificant compared to God. That's what the author of Kings wants us to see. What matters is not the external performance of these kings, what they do for their nations, but ultimately what matters in judging these kings, if they good or they bad kings, is their allegiance to God. And king after king in Israel is noted for the way that they were devoted to the other gods following in the footsteps of Jeroboam. What ultimately matters, and this is the one thing we should walk away with today, is not what worldly legacy we leave behind, but where our devotion lies. What doomed Israel and what the author of Kings is trying to help the people of Judah in captivity and us today understand as they hear these words was what doomed Israel was that they were unfaithful to God. They forgot about him. They neglected him. They, they pursued other things. Their hopes and desires were on anything but 
God. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this quote, and it's a really helpful quote, and will frame much of what we talk about the rest of this morning. He says this, where 1,000 are destroyed by the world's frowns, 10,000 are destroyed by the world's smiles. The world, siren-like, it sings us and sinks us. It kisses us and betrays us like Judas. It kisses us and smites us under the fifth rib like Joab. The honors, splendor, and all the glory of this world are but sweet poisons that will much endanger us if they do not eternally destroy us. What we should see when we read Kings is the threat of following the wisdom and things of this world, of being drawn into these sirens. And if you don't know what a siren is, as he quotes this, a siren is a mythical creature that we know most of from Homer's Odyssey. Uh, it was a song. These creatures could sing this song so beautiful that the sailors would be drawn to them and ultimately would destroy themselves and be led to their death. And so what Thomas Brooks in the book of Kings is reminding us is that the things of this world are like that. They seem beautiful. They seem irresistible. And so we turn to them, but when we turn to them and set our affections on them, we set ourselves on the path of destruction. And so I want to talk about just one of these worldly things. And I think this is the siren as Americans that lures us all in way more than we realize. And it's money. Now, many of you say, how can money be a problem when I don't have any, thanks to inflation and the things that are going on in our government, right? That's not an issue, right? And that's true to some extent. The average American uh, this week, as I, I pulled up reports on Experian and other, other places as well, has over $6,000 in just credit card debt right now. Now, if you expand that out to all kinds of debt for, for my people, the millennials, uh, it's $120,000 of debt that the average millennial has right now. Uh, in our current state. Now, some of that student loans and mortgages and other things, but the reality is there's a lot of debt hanging over people's heads. So all of us in here feel that and know that there's a real issue uh, with money. It's tight. But how many of us, if I told you we could all have an extra five grand this year, would say, I could put that to good use. That could be really helpful. Only a few of us maybe would say, like, yeah, five grand, who cares? Uh, that's not that important, right? Most of us would be like, yeah, I got... I could do some things with five grand. Uh, I could maybe have a little bit nicer vacation, spend some quality time with my family this year, right? So I could put five grand to that. I could pay off debt. I could help get a down payment on that little bit bigger home to help my growing family. And so the siren song of money calls to us and says, if you just had this, wouldn't your life be just a little bit better? Wouldn't you just feel good if you had a little bit extra in your life. And so our mind goes, what could we do with an extra $5,000 if we got it today? But what's happening is our attention is being drifted. It's no longer on God, and we start to see our affections thinking of all the great things that we could do with $5,000. But if all of your problems would be solved by a raise or promotion, and you convince yourself that that extra five grand would really solve your problems that you face today, it's easy to make that the focus of your attention. And not even saying cut corners to make a little bit extra money, right? I'm saying you might so say that just having a little bit more money could solve these problems, so I'm just going to work a couple extra hours of overtime every single week so it accumulates, and so at the end of the year, I've made this little bit extra money. And that could be a good thing, 
But the problem is we don't often judge it on all the other things we're giving up when we do that. Are we neglecting time in other areas of our life, time with God, time with family, time with the church, uh, so that we can have that little bit extra income so we could have that little extra margin? Or maybe the tightness of our wallets causes us to shrink back from the command in Scripture to be generous and say, well, if I made five more grand, I could finally start giving to move some different missions areas church, or I could start giving to the church so that they can do what God has called them to do. Five grand, I'm going to work overtime just so I can do that, right? But what's happening? Is that siren call of money just a little bit more? This will solve your problems and put you on a slippery slope. And your affections, what you see as most critical to life, begins to drift from God and onto other things. And ultimately, what we see in life is affection will ultimately drive action. The things that you desire are the things that you will ultimately do. But I'm here to tell you, having more money won't make your life better. It might make it easier, but there are many people who live much more fulfilling lives on much less than we have today because they have not been brought to sleep by the lullaby of that siren song of money. If I had time, we could go through many other examples in our life beyond money. But the point of Thomas Brooks' quote and the book of Kings trying to helpfully understand for us today is that the things of this world are poison to us in the fact that they want to compete for our affections. It's easy to look to them for hope, for purpose, for satisfaction, meaning even salvation. The things of this world, though, can provide none of that. They are those things clamoring to be the focus of our lives. They are even good things, like family, prosperity, security, influence, honor, activism for godly uh, causes. But Thomas Brooks is so right, and the book of Kings helps us to see that. The good things of this world are much more dangerous than the bad, for the good things of this world convince us that they really are not that dangerous to pursue that they will give us what we ultimately need. But is this true? Of course not. Kings reminds us of that. A heart devoted to anything other than God invites only misery and chaos into its life. No amount of wealth will ever be enough. Remember Solomon and his uh, many, many golden shields? He had so much gold he didn't know what to do. He made shields out of them to lay around in his temple in 1 Kings 10. But what happens? They're all gone by the end of his son's reign. The wealth of Judah, as we pick up this passage today, has totally been evaporated. Long gone is the prosperous nation under Solomon. Now is this fledgling nation just hoping to survive. Year after year, the king and the people in the north have had their affections on anything other than God. So great have they been hardened by this, and so great has their sin grown Uh, towards God that we are told of Ahab on the heels of his father who up until Ahab is this is the most evil king that ever exists and then Ahab comes along and says hold my beer I'll be more evil right (laughs) like like I got this dad I can show you Uh, right this is what he does so Omri was evil more than any before him but Ahab is even more so much so that the author of Kings says if it had been a light thing for him to walk In the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. 
he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, the capital city of this nation. If you go to Jerusalem, what's at the center of Jerusalem? The temple to God, where all the people came and worshiped God. What is Ahab going to put in the middle of his city? What temple is he going to build? Not to God. He's going to build a temple to Baal, which has all kinds of horrific ways of worshiping that are not appropriate for children to hear. Uh, But it's not good what Ahab is allowing to happen in the streets of Samaria as he builds and erects this temple to uh, Baal and to the Asherah. Ahab invites chaos on his life because of it. And ultimately, we can say and sum this all up very simply, living for worldly things just leads to more worldly living. Right? If you live for the things of this world, you are only going to live as a more worldly person. The northern nation is the ultimate example of this as they live for the things of this world. All of the foreign gods, they're going to bring them in. That sounds good to me. I kind of like the way that they worship. That looks like a fun Friday night. And so they will put a temple for that so we can have that here in our city. Yeah, we can worship in that way. Uh, the northern nation, though, sips more and more of that poison from the honor, the glories, the splendors of this world, and are drawn further and further into depravity. Their hearts are hardened more and more and more against God. The kingdom is expanded. Under Ahab and Omri, they seem to be flourishing. But at what cost? The kingdom is not defined by stability, but by backstabbing. Even as the chapter closes, we are drawn to see at what lengths the people in this nation are willing to go in pursuit of prosperity and prestige. The very end of the chapter, verse 34, the last verse, in his days, he of Bethel built Jericho. That might sound like a good thing, build a city, have your own city that you can have, but at what cost? He laid the foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So much has the hearts of Israel been hardened as their affections have been towards foreign gods and the pleasures of this world that they are willing to give up the life of their sons to satisfy their appetites. Jericho, a symbol of God's faithfulness to the people, lying in great destruction, uh, reminding people that God had brought deliverance, that God was faithful to his covenant, that he was going to supply everything he had said he ever would. They say, well, we want that for ourselves. And so they rebuild it at the cost of their sons. If David, as we're closing today, is the model of the faithful king, one whose heart was true to the Lord, Ahab, who now is emerging onto the scene, is the opposite. He and his wife Jezebel will become the standard and the warning of just what can happen when one's affections are void of God. And so there's a warning in these words for us this morning to ask ourselves, where does the affection of our heart belong? Now, if you can't answer that or don't know how to answer that, this is not a universally true statement, but I find it's a very good test of myself and other people when I help them out to ask yourself, what is your opinion of yourself? I find that more often than not, the higher opinion somebody has of themselves, the lower they need God or see a need for God or live in relationship with God. They don't see God as that important to their life. Yeah, I believe in God. He's good. He saved me, and I'm grateful for that. But, you know, I got my savings account. I got a good job. I got a good house. Things are going really good in my household. Everything in life seems to be going really good. I don't really need God that much. Why? Because I'm doing pretty good by myself. 
However, the one who sees themselves in the mirror as an utter wreck, as somebody who has no hope and and has nothing in this life, often has a very large affection towards God, as they see he is the only way out of the misery. And I worry that in our day today, when we live more prosperous than any other nation and people before us in history, when we have abundance, even in times of financial struggle, like we see today, we ultimately see ourselves as mostly good. We have the answers, we have the tools, we have the resources to provide everything we need for ourselves. But this is a poison. For apart from God, we are destined for destruction. And so we need to wake up every morning and go to God for everything. To see ourselves not as worthy of praise, but as worthy of damnation. And in those moments, see our Savior Jesus who reaches out his hand, who lifts us up from that pit of despair and draws us closer and closer to him. There is only one worthy of praise. There is only one who can save, and his name is Jesus Christ. William Fenner, a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, helpfully talked about the grace of Christ in this way. He says this, grace comes not to take away a man's affections, but to take them up. There is a call for us from kings this morning. Where does our affection lie? What is the pursuit of our life? If it's anyone or anything other than Jesus, Kings begs us to come to the God of Israel, to the one who has set up his son as the eternal lamp and hope for his people and say, help me, Jesus. I need your help. John 10, 7, Jesus talks and says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. This is who we are called to place our affections on. Not the thieves and the robbers, the things of this world that want to come in and steal us away but to the God who saves, to Jesus himself who says, I came that they may have life. I lay my life down for my sheep. And so as we finish this morning, I want to simply ask, will you set your eyes on the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep? Or will your affections be on the things of this world? If they're on Jesus, you will find the only way to true peace and joy in this life. If they're on the things of this world, the only guarantee is more chaos and turmoil in the things that are around you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your good word, for the encouragement that we have from kings. And Lord, as I prayed earlier, it's so easy for us to look at how bad Ahab and Omri and Basha and Zimri, all these kings are. Uh, Lord, for their rebellion against you, their lack of, of desire to worship you. But if we're honest, we're not so different. Lord, we so often find ourselves pushing you out of our lives, our day-to-day lives, not having enough time to go to you in prayer, not having enough time to open up your word, shortchanging our relationship with you because the things of this world, frankly, seem more important. And we confess to you this morning as we gather together, Lord, that we don't want that to be the case. 
we want what's most important in our life for our affections to be drawn up from the things of this world and to be placed on you. And so we pray that you will help us soften our hearts, uh, give us wisdom in our mind, Lord, that we wouldn't be lulled to sleep by the siren songs of this world, but would hear clearly the voice of our Savior Jesus calling us to him. Lord, help us, help us to come to the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep so that we might have life and life abundantly in his kingdom and under his reign. We ask this in his name, amen.